the Yankees heat up. And Sandy Koufax is the talk of the baseball world. It's episode 10 of Baseball 61. There it is. There it is. If it stays fair, there it is, number 60. How about that? A standing ovation for Roger Maris, who got number 60. Fastball hits deep to right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Baseball 61, a podcast about the historic 1961 New York Yankees and the Major League Baseball season of 1961. I'm Dan Lavallo. This is going to be an unusually long episode, so here we go. We begin with Friday, June 2nd, in front of 38,410 fans at Comiskey Park, The Yankees put on another power display against the last-place Chicago White Sox, the same White Sox managed by Al Lopez, who battled the Yankees and Orioles for the 1960 pennant. Whitey Ford took to the mound, and he was stellar after yielding two first-inning runs. Meanwhile, Yogi Berra slugged two home runs, and Roger Maris belted his 13th as the Yankees defeated the Chicago White Sox 6-2, in a two-hour and six-minute ball game. Whitey settled down after the shaky first and pitched a complete game for his seventh victory against two losses. What do they say about pitchers, especially aces? If you're going to get to them, you better do it in the first inning. Well, Ford walked two, struck out three. Were the Yankees on a roll? They were now 24-18. and 18. New York remained in third place, four games behind the first-place Tigers, who defeated Minnesota 2-0. Meanwhile, before the game, manager Ralph Falk announced that Bob Turley was dropped from the starting rotation and relegated to the bullpen along with Art Dittmar. Taking his place in the rotation, Jim Coates. Uh, boxing was also in the news on this date as Gene Tunney and Jack Dempsey, former world heavyweight champions, testified before a U.S. Senate subcommittee that boxing should be federally regulated. Both former boxers claimed the sport had sunk to a new low and was being destroyed by criminals and unwise television policies. They also claimed a badly injured fighter, Ingemar Johansson, was suffering from brain trauma when he was permitted to fight for the world heavyweight title against Floyd Patterson on March 13th in Miami. So boxing, which you've got to remember back then, the big sports were baseball, boxing, college football, then the NFL. Well, boxing was a big sport, and this was a big hearing in the United States Senate. Saturday, June 3rd, on the same day that President Kennedy was scheduled to meet Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev for the first time in Vienna, the Yankees were slated to battle the White Sox in a day game. The Kennedy-Khrushchev talk lasted four hours, just a tad longer than the Yankees-White Sox battle. And in the end, it was described as one of the most painful games of the season for the Yankees. With Baseball Hall of Fame player Rogers Hornsby, now a New York Mets scout, taking in the game, the Yankees held a 5-2 lead going to the bottom of the eighth in front of a Ladies' Day audience of 25,328. 
Roger Maris slugged his 14th home run of the season to help the cause. But starter Ralph Terry tired in the eighth and was lifted for Tex Clevenger. The Yankee reliever faltered and Luis Arroyo was brought in to stop the bleeding. But the White Sox rallied to tie the score 5-5 after eight, helped by a two-run homer by Floyd Robinson. Arroyo settled down to pitch four and two-thirds innings of scoreless relief, but former Chicago Cubs retread Warren Hacker was equally tough. Manager Houck lifted Arroyo for a pinch hitter in the top of the 13th, setting the stage for Art Dittmar to come in out of the pen. The struggling pitcher served up a leadoff homer to Roy Seavers, and the White Sox had a 6-5 win in 13 innings, a game which took three hours and 26 minutes to play and it dropped the Yankees five games out of first place. Off the field, rumors were growing that a group led by entertainer Danny Thomas to buy 54% of the White Sox from majority owners Bill Veck and Hank Greenberg was not a lock. Not a lock. Chuck Comiskey, whose granddad once owned the White Sox, held a 46% interest and was reportedly pushing hard to buy another 5% to take over control of the club ownership intrigue. There was also other news off the field when American League President Joe Cronin announced he was in favor of allowing the return of the spitball to help bring the game more into balance between the pitchers and the hitters. The spitball. Cronin stated he wouldn't make a pitch to restore the outlawed pitch, but that allowing the spitball was just his opinion. Meanwhile, at Belmont Park in New York, where Racing's third leg of the Triple Crown was taking place. The Belmont Stakes? Well, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower was in attendance, along with his wife Mamie, the former First Lady, and some of his former cabinet members. What did they do? They bet on the favorite, Kerry Back, to win. However, a 65-to-1 shot, Sherlock, won the race, with Kerry Back finishing seventh. Sherlock, by the way, paid $132.10 on a $2 bet. Remember, this was 60 years ago, 1961. That's big money, $132.10 on a $2 bet. Sunday, June 4th. With reports that talks between President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev were not going well, the Yankees and White Sox locked horns in the deciding game of their three-game series. It was never a contest. The Yankees-White Sox game, that is. Roger Maris was on fire, slugging his 15th home run of the campaign and 12th in his last 16 games as the Yankees routed the White Sox 10-1 in front of 28,362 fans, game lasting 2 hours and 38 minutes. It was the 12th straight game, by the way, in which the Yanks slugged at least one home run. The record, 25, held by the 1941 Yankees. On the mound, 22-year-old righty Bill Stafford hurled the distance for his second win against two defeats. He scattered seven hits, walked four, struck out three. The story was off the field, though, and the topic was, what else? Money. Met scout Rogers Hornsby was weighing in on the $100,000 bonus doled out by the Yanks to Ole Miss All-America quarterback and third baseman Jake Gibbs. Said the Hall of Fame player, quote, The boy has a good swing and meets the ball well, but there's one thing we've got to wait and see. If, as with most football players, he's muscle-bound across the chest, he'll never pull the ball much. 
and White Sox manager Al Lopez also had an opinion about the big bonus money being handed out by owners to infield prospects. Said Lopez, quote, A pitcher with a strong arm might be worth the gamble because you at least know he's got that. But how can the Yankees or anyone else tell whether a kid just out of school or college ever will hit big league pitching? Well, on this Sunday afternoon, the Yankees hit big league pitching, but so did the first-place Tigers, slugging eight home runs and sweeping a doubleheader from the Minnesota Twins. At 25-19, and 19, the Yankees remained in third place, five and a half games behind the Tigers, while Cleveland was in second two games out. In the National League, the L.A. Dodgers at 29-20 and 20 were in first place by half a game over Cincinnati and San Francisco. The defending world champion Pittsburgh Pirates were three games out. Monday, June 5th, the Yankees were back home to play 11 games in eight days, beginning with a twinite doubleheader against the Twins, who were playing back-to-back Twin Bills. While President Kennedy and First Lady Jacqueline were dinner guests of Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace, 23,103 turned out for the doubleheader at the stadium, which started at 6 o'clock. Before the game, the Yankees announced Bob Turley was examined by team physician Dr. Sidney Gaynor and was diagnosed with a strained ligament in his right elbow. How long would he be out? Let's see, 2021? He'll be back in two months. 1961? He'll be out a week. (laughs) That's right, diagnosed with a strained ligament in his right elbow, one week's rest and heat treatment were prescribed. The Yankees also recalled 22-year-old reliever Hal Reniff from the Richmond Farm Club. Hal Reniff, uniform number 18. Gosh, I remember that after all these years. Rather than place Turley on the disabled list, though, the Yanks sent out catcher Jesse Gonder to Richmond. On the field, all Yankees. New York sweeping the stumbling twins, a doubleheader 6-2 and 6-1. Minnesota 1-16 and in its last 17 games, and the Twins were predicted to be contenders for the American League in 1961. First game of the doubleheader, Mickey Mantle slugged his 15th home run of the season and the 335th of his career. On the mound, Jim Coates, newly minted in the starting rotation, pitched into the ninth inning in the 2-hour and 28-minute game before Luis Arroyo came on to close it out with a scoreless frame. Coates improved to 6-2. In the second game, a two-hour and 31-minute affair, Rolly Sheldon pitched a complete game victory, improved to 2-2. Two two. He allowed the Twins one run on six hits with one walk and three strikeouts. By the way, for Minnesota, Jim Cott pitched a scoreless eighth inning. Who could predict that someday Cott would pitch and broadcast for the Yankees? As for New York... It was a productive night as the Tigers lost, placing the Bombers four games out of first place. It was also a trade made as the Washington Senators dealt the Tigers southpaw pitcher Hal Woodishick for 25-year-old second baseman Chuck Cartier. There was also a new first-place club in the National League as the Reds defeated Milwaukee 5-3, leapfrogging over the Dodgers, who lost 5-2 to Pittsburgh. One other sports note. The new American Basketball League, which would open play in October with an 80-game schedule, announced it would add a three-point field goal shot and would have playoffs at midseason and at season's end. Playoffs at midseason. 
Sounds like the NBA's effort to launch a midseason tournament in the 21st century. Ah, yes, the ABL, where a fellow by the name of George Steinbrenner would gain his entrance into the sports world by owning a franchise in that circuit. Tuesday, June 6th. It was the 17th anniversary of D-Day as President Kennedy spoke to the nation on television and radio about his recent summit in Europe, including his meeting with Soviet Premier Khrushchev. With the twins reeling, owner Calvin Griffin ordered manager Cookie Lavagetto back to Minnesota for one week of rest and meetings about the club's personnel. Coach Sam Mealy took over as interim manager the same Sam Mealy who would guide the Twins to the American League pennant in 1965. Anyway, here's Mealy, now managing the team. He lasted all of an inning and a half as he was tossed by umpire Bob Stewart for protesting a third strike call. Former Yankee and Twins coach Ed Lopat guided the team for the rest of the night. Didn't help. Roger Maris slugged a three-run homer into the right field stands in the sixth inning, his 16th of the season as the Yanks went on to a 7-2 win in front of 17,129. Whitey Ford improved to 8-2, while Luis Arroyo closed out the two-hour and 44-minute game with one and two-thirds scoreless innings of relief. Might add hitless innings as well. Is it a wonder that Ford always found praise for Arroyo when he talked about his 1961 pitching performance? Incidentally, in that game, Ford's old buddy and former teammate Billy Martin, now ensconced at second base where the Twins went 0-3 against Ford and 0-4 in the game. The home run by Maris, the 15th consecutive game the Yanks homered. It also marked 29 homers in those 15 games, topping the mark of 27 homers in 15 games set by, you guessed it, those 1941 Yankees. With the Tigers' loss... Detroit was starting to reel a bit, and a Cleveland victory. The Indians now had a six-percentage-point lead over the now second-place Tigers, with the Yanks just three games back. The White Sox were also making news again involving ownership, with Hank Greenberg announcing the sale of 54% of the ball club. He, Bill Veck, and A.C. Allen Jr. owned was off. That syndicate headed by entertainer Danny Thomas, had offered to purchase the club, and a spokesman for that group said it was hoped negotiations to buy the majority control of the club would resume within 30 days, or the group was prepared to take legal action against Vec and company. By the way, the reason Vec wanted to sell the club was because of his health. Doctors had ordered him to dial it back, and this is uh, was what he was doing. He was dialing it back, and that's why he decided to sell. Wednesday, June 7th, the Yankees and Twins wrapped up their four-game series in 88-degree heat with a day game. It was also Bronx Little League Day at the stadium, and some 6,643 Little Leaguers were on hand, not counted toward the attendance of 9,016. Anyway, the crowd saw plenty of action in the two-hour and 14-minute game, and it started in the very first inning when Billy Martin tripled off of Yankee starter Ralph Terry. Martin scored on a Lenny Green double, and the Twins were out front 1-0. But not for long. 
And the third inning off of Pedro Ramos, a pitcher who would play a significant role in the Yankees' 1964 pennant drive. The Bombers erupted. Terry singled. With two outs, Tony Kubek singled, extending his hitting streak to 16 games. Roger Maris then unloaded a three-run homer into the upper deck in right field, his 17th homer of the year, and the Yankees were leading 3-1 and not done yet. Before acting manager Sam Mealy could bat an eyelash, Mickey Mantle lined a single off of Billy Martin's glove. Imagine that conversation later. And Yogi Berra followed with his ninth home run, described as a towering shot into the right center field bleachers. Oh, to be at that game, or somehow get a hold of the radio broadcast of that game. Could you hear Mel Allen? How about that? Five runs, just like that. As for Maris, who now led the majors with those 17 dingers, he had 14 home runs in his last 20 games. The Yankees, meanwhile, had belted 31 homers over 16 straight games at a five-game winning streak after sweeping the four-game set with a 5-1 to victory and had won six of their last seven. Minnesota, the Twins were on a 13-game losing streak. Ralph Terry, after a shaky start, faced 25 batters over the remaining eight innings for a complete game victory. He allowed two hits, both in the first inning, walked three, struck out four, improved to 3-0. and The Bombers now 10 games over 500. That's when they supposedly start taking you seriously, when you get to 10 games over 500. They were 29-19, and remained in third place, three games behind the first place, Indians. And their $100,000 bonus baby, Jake Gibbs, making news as he made his professional debut, collecting five hits in a doubleheader for AAA Richmond after striking out on his first at-bat and making an error at third base in the first inning. Said Gibbs, after I struck out and made that error, I began feeling better. Remember, Gibbs was a quarterback, an All-America quarterback at Ole Miss, and he compared his nerves to football, saying he usually felt some anxiety before a football game, but that it all disappeared after the first contact. Next up, the improved athletics, who were suddenly just two games under 500, with their new owner, Charles Finley, drawing praise from the Sporting News in an editorial. Finley apparently overruled his GM, Frank Lane, and manager Joe Gordon, who wanted to farm out pitcher Norman Bass. Since Finley stepped in, Bass has been the Athletics' leading pitcher and hurled the club's first shutout on June 3rd. In other words, Bass wasn't going down on the farm if Finley had a say in it, and he was the guy who was writing out the paychecks. You bet he had a say in it. Finley also shelled out $125,000 to 18-year-old Lou Krause Jr., son of an A-scout. Jr. had pitched 18 no-hitters in high school. This would not be the first time Finley would step in to make these roster moves and be involved in the operation of the team's personnel. We know that for sure. Anyway, the Athletics would be in town for a Thursday doubleheader. Meanwhile, the second-place Tigers were making moves again, sending pitcher Jim Donahue to the Los Angeles Angels for pitcher Jerry Casale, a former Red Sox pitcher who went 13-8 and for the 1960 Red Sox. Thursday, June 8th. The White House disclosed President Kennedy strained his back during a tree-planting ceremony. Meanwhile, the Yanks' doubleheader strain would continue. 
It was the Yankees' second Twi-Night doubleheader in four days. Ah, those twin bills were piling up for all the clubs, thanks to the early season rainouts, and it led to a suggestion by Baltimore Orioles general manager Lee McPhail. He was proposing that doubleheaders consist of one nine-inning game and one seven-inning game. Sound familiar? In the afternoon, the nine-inning game would be played first, and at night, the seven-inning game would be played first. Here's what McPhail said, quote, When the fans come out to the park at 6 o'clock, they want to get out of there before 11 o'clock, if at all possible. I doubt that the average fan cares about the length of a single game, so long as there are not too many unnecessary delays. Not only would seven-inning games please the fans more, but it would reduce the severe workload pitching staffs must assume. But what about those cherished records, Lee? I see no real difficulty, he said. Certainly no more than we already have made by expanding the schedule from 154 to 162 games. Lee McPhail. By the way, McPhail would someday go on to be general manager of the Yankees, later president of the American League, and as president of the American League, he had several run-ins with Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. And, of course, in the 1940s, his dad, Larry, was part owner of the Yankees. His dad, Larry, was the man who brought night baseball to the major leagues when he was with the Cincinnati Reds. So Lee McPhail was part of a cherished baseball family. Anyway, not only was baseball playing all of these makeup doubleheaders in 1961, because of expansion, there were many scheduled doubleheaders. That used to be a gate attraction, a scheduled doubleheader. And remember, the American League expanded to 10 teams in 1961. The National League was going to expand to 10 in 1962. So when you hear this outcry over two seven-inning games for a doubleheader, as we saw in 2020 and in 2021, the outcry by the traditionalists, well, this is not a new concept. You could say it was 60 years in the making. There was also on this date a trade between the Orioles and Athletics, with Baltimore sending outfielder Gene Stevens to Kansas City for first baseman Marv Throneberry, marvelous Marv, the ex-Yankee who was on the move again. Throneberry was having a respectable season, 240 batting average, six homers, 24 runs battered in. At the stadium, 13,157 fans turned out for the Twinite doubleheader. In the first game, the Yankees needed just two hours and 12 minutes behind Bill Stafford's five-hit complete game effort, to down the A's 6-1 to one for their sixth straight victory. Bill Scourin had the big bat, knocking in four runs, including a two-run homer for his 11th home run of the season. It marked the 17th consecutive game in which the Yanks homered, belting 32 home runs over that stretch. In the second game, the Yankees' home run streak and winning streak ended. New York did pound out 11 hits, including a two-run double by Cleet Boyer and a two-run single by Tony Kubek, who extended his hitting streak to 18 games. But future Red Sox owner Haywood Sullivan homered, and ex-Yankees Hank Bauer and Norm Seaburn with a double and triple led to two runs, and future catcher Jorge Posada's uncle Leo Posada added an RBI triple 
Kansas City overcame an early 5-1 deficit and beat the Yanks 9-6 in 2 hours and 32 minutes. Starting pitcher Danny McDivitt and Art Dittmar absorbed the pounding as the Yanks dropped to 30-20, three games behind first-place Cleveland. Meanwhile, in Cincinnati, how about this game? Reds leading 10-2 over Milwaukee going to the top of the seventh when Eddie Matthews, Hank Aaron, Joe Adcock, and Frank Thomas hit consecutive home runs, the last two homers off of future Yankee reliever Marshall Bridges. Four homers in a row, a big league record, and the Braves still lost 10-8. Friday, June 9th. Kansas City remained busy in the trademark, dealing 34-year-old first baseman Bob Boyd to the Milwaukee Braves for cash. Owner Charles Finley apparently needed money to offset that bonus he gave to Luke Krause Jr., and owners kept doling out the money as the Braves inked a 17-year-old high school pitcher who never lost a game to a signing bonus, described as an excess of $100,000. His name, Wade Blassingame who was 26-0 in high school. The Yankees and Houston Colts were also reportedly in on the bidding, but falling short of the 100 Gs. The Yankees did sign an outfielder out of the University of Richmond to what was reported as a modest bonus, Tom Red Booker, age 21, who batted 346 in the Southern Conference, inked a deal, and was signed to Class B Greensboro in the Carolina League. At the stadium, meanwhile, 22,418 turned out during a persistent rain to watch what would be the recipe to the Yankees' 1961 success. Mickey Mantle slugged his 16th home run of the season, a blast to left, helping the Yankees to a 4-1 lead. But the Athletics kept packing away with Leo Posada striking again. This time he chased starter Jim Coates with a two-run homer in the sixth, that tied the game 5-5. But in the seventh, Tony Kubek, who extended his hitting streak to 19 games earlier with a single, doubled, and Roger Maris slugged his 18th home run of the year, this one landing in the right field seats to give New York a 7-5 advantage. It was up to Luis Arroyo to finish the job after relieving Coates, and he almost blew it as a couple of ex-Yankees struck back with New York leaning 8-6 in the ninth. Andy Carey tripled, and pinch hitter Don Larson knocked him in with a single. Arroyo then settled down, and the Yankees had their seventh win in eight games, 8-6, in a game that took two hours and 34 minutes to play. Meanwhile, Cleveland defeated Detroit 5-4 in their showdown series, so the Indians were in first by a game and a half over the Tigers and three over the Yankees. Saturday, June 10th. The day started with the Yankees doling out more money, this time a $40,000 bonus to Ronald Solomine of Brooklyn, a 20-year-old center fielder for Long Island University. The Yanks supposedly beat out 15 other big league clubs for his services. As a sophomore, Solomine batted 507 for LIU. Solomine, by the way, was a graduate of Lafayette High School in Brooklyn, the same high school attended by Sandy Koufax. It was the finale of a four-game series ending on a Saturday and on Ladies' Day with 18,665 turning out. But it wouldn't be a day if the A's owner Charles Finley wasn't making a trade, right? 
And this time, he engineered a 4-for-4 trade with the White Sox. Of course, GM Frank Lane also had a role in the deal, as did the White Sox general manager Hank Greenberg. And guess who was involved? Remember what I said about Andy Carey and Don Larson involved in the Athletics' ninth-inning rally the night before? Well, they were involved in the deal. Kansas City sent pitchers Ray Herbert and Larson third baseman Carey and outfielder Al Polarsic to the White Sox in exchange for pitchers Bob Shaw and Jerry Staley and outfielders Wes Covington and Stan Johnson. Yes, Carey and Larson were gone after helping in that near ninth-inning comeback. Mickey Mantle, by the way, who started the Yankees' scoring surge with a second-inning triple off of future Cincinnati Reds broadcaster Joe Nuxall, a left-hander, Finished it in the eighth with his 17th homer of the season off of future Yankee and future American League umpire Bill Kunkel. By the way, this is the same Joe Nuxall who at the age of 15 in 1944 pitched for the Cincinnati Reds. He was the youngest player in baseball history and got his early shot because of the player shortage during World War II. But there was drama in this game as former Yankee Hank Bauer age 38, belted an inside-the-park home run, a shot to the 461-foot mark. The two-run homer off of Whitey Ford. Imagine when those two got together for old-timers games. You think Hank reminded uh, Whitey? Because remember, they were teammates on the Yankees. You think Hank reminded Whitey about that inside-the-park homer? Anyway, a two-run shot off of Whitey Ford followed a solo homer by Nuxall, who said pitchers can't hit. And a walk to future Yankees manager Dick Hauser. That's right. Hauser was on base when Bauer hit that inside the parker in the third inning to give Kansas City a 3-2 lead. But in the sixth, the Yankees rallied. Mantle drew a walk. Moose Scourin tripled to tie the game. Bob served, then delivered an infield hit. Mantle closed out the scoring with that homer in the eighth, and the Yankees had a 5-3 win in two hours and 12 minutes. Ford hurled the distance, allowing three runs on five hits, improving to 9-2 and two in the process. No need for Luis Arroyo in this game. Now, with the Tigers shutting out Cleveland 2-0 behind Jim Bunning's five-hitter and home runs by Rocky Calavito and Norm Cash, the race was tightening. The Indians led Detroit by half a game, and the 32-20 and 20 Yanks by just two. Even the expansion Senators were hanging in at 27-28, and 28, eight and a half games out, entering mid-June. In the National League, meanwhile, the Dodgers at 33-22 and 22 led the Reds by half a game and the Giants by a game and a half. By the way, in that Jim Bunning five-hitter over Cleveland, Jimmy Pearsall had three of the Indians' five hits to raise his batting average to 367. He was among the league leaders. And the three-game series in Detroit between the Indians and the Tigers, drew 113,000 fans. In fact, the Tigers, for their home attendance, had gone over the 400,000 mark for the season. Now, remember, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned Sandy Koufax. Well, Koufax was making news. Described as a scattered arm pitcher, he was now being featured in numerous publications about his newfound control and 8-2 and two record, one season after going 8-13. and 13. The secret to his success? 
Well, Dodgers pitching coach Joe Becker said Koufax shortened his stride and had better control of his curveball. Added Koufax, quote, I can throw the ball where I want to now. I'm working with a little less effort and a lot more concentration. Also making news, the sale of the Chicago White Sox by majority owner Bill Veck and Hank Greenberg, but not to a group led by entertainer Danny Thomas. Arthur C. Allen, who was the other majority owner, bought out Veck and Greenberg, thus shutting out minority owner Chuck Comiskey from taking control. Comiskey owned 46% of the club, remember. The sale price was $2.5 million. No word on whether the Thomas Group would challenge the sale, as it indicated earlier in the week, if such an event unfolded. But it was quite a stretch in the 1961 season. That is going to do it for our latest Baseball 61 podcast. Be sure to follow our podcast in the Apple Podcast directory, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also visit Baseball61.com. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm Dan Lavallo.